Now, let's get into the Word together. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10. We are in a series that we just started last week called Unfailing. And um, today we're going to be talking about the unfailing gospel. Let me ask you, have you ever failed at something? Like just gloriously fell flat on your face and failed at something. If you haven't, you probably haven't tried enough stuff, right? And so the more we do, the more we end up failing at some point. We, we've all failed in some way. Maybe you failed a class or maybe you failed at a career or something with your job. Maybe, maybe like me, at times you fail or feel like a failure uh, in areas of your parenting, right? Or you failed someone as a friend. Or, because we are not perfect, we fail from time to time. But fortunately, let me ask you, does God fail? You ever wonder, does God fail, right? Fortunately, we have a God who does not fail. If God fails, we're all in trouble this morning because we're all a bunch of failures, okay? We failed to keep God's law. We failed to keep God's word. We fail in a lot of ways, but God does not fail. And in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11 is the series that we're in these few weeks. Uh, we, we get this picture of how God does not fail. We fail, but God does not fail. In fact, the big question Paul is answering, the Apostle Paul, when he writes Romans chapters 9 through 11, is, hey, when you look at the Old Testament, you see Israel as God's chosen people. You get to the New Testament, and most of them reject Jesus as the Messiah. So what happened? Did God not keep his promise? Did, did God fail to save them? What happened? And what he's showing us is, no, rather they failed to believe. They failed to believe. And last week we talked about God's sovereignty over salvation. How God uh, saves. And salvation is of the Lord. And if, and if you got saved, it's God's doing, not your doing. This week though, we're going to talk about the other side of the coin. And that is our responsibility before God. How we are all responsible creatures made in his image. And we have a, a decision we need to make with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are responsible for our lives, our decisions, and most importantly, what we do with the gospel. So Paul is in Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 21. He is focusing on our, our in humanity's response. In particular in these verses he's really focusing on Israel's response. And what I want you to see this week is that a lack of salvation, a lack of trusting Christ as Lord and Savior is never due to God's failure or the gospel's failure. Someone doesn't get saved. If someone uh, says that they're a Christian but they fall away and they walk away from the faith, it's, it's never the gospel's failure to save. It's never God's failure in their life. It's man's failure that's created our problem. And it's all, our own failure to believe the gospel that leaves us in our sin. We are responsible before God. So I want to walk you through Romans 10 and see how the gospel does not fail but we can. And there's two dangers we're going to talk about this morning that all of us face. We can fail to believe the gospel and we can fail to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we're going to see in Romans 10. That many times people fail to believe the gospel. And sometimes as believers, as those who have believed the gospel, we fail to proclaim the gospel. So look with me. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 21. It's a lot of scripture. We're going to read through it all because, you know, it's church, what we do. So let's start in verse 1. We're in the ESV. Let's read it together. It's on the screen for you. Follow along with me if you don't have my translation. So here we go. Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now the they here is the Israelites. Verse 2. For I bear them witness, Paul says, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness, righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 18, but I ask, what have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Pray with me. Oh, Father, your word is good. And Lord, we need help to understand it and to apply it. So Lord, as we study it now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart to see and behold beautiful truth from your word and to walk in it, Lord, we pray, by faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, two big ideas here. One big idea all about how the gospel does not fail. But we can, right? Two dangers. We can fail to believe the gospel. We can fail to proclaim the gospel. So point number one this morning is do not fail to believe the gospel. Do not fail to believe the gospel. The people here in the first four verses that Paul is referring to, as I mentioned, are the Israelites. And Paul is expressing again his desire, like he did at the beginning of chapter 9, to see them saved. Then Paul says they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. He's, it's misplaced. They are, they are ignorant, he says, of the righteousness of God. They have missed how you gain righteous standing in the eyes of God. That's the big idea there. They have instead tried to establish their own righteousness before God by keeping the law and they've refused to submit to God's as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which shows us that we can't be righteous on our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus applied to our account. And Paul points out how Christ, he says, is the end of the law. The end of the law of righteousness for the believer. In other words, the law pointed to Jesus. That was the whole point. And it found its fulfillment in him. The one who perfectly kept it. Now, the majority of the Jewish people at that time had rejected Christ. 
Rather than see their need for a savior, they tried to keep the law well enough in hopes that they would, that, that would save them. And religious people today, uh, you and I, and anyone who considers themselves religious, and I would say to some extent everybody's religious, okay? To some extent even agnosticism and atheism are forms of religion, right? They've got, we got our own beliefs and way of thinking. And I would say all religious people today face a danger of failing to believe the gospel instead of try, and, and instead trying to be righteous on our own. It's easy to do religious activities, for instance, like going to church, right? Praying, reading your Bible, being involved, trying to be a good person, helping people, giving, all these activities. These, they're really rituals, you might say. Nothing wrong with those things, but to put your trust in those to save you, trying to establish your own righteousness. People did it then, in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Some 2,000 years later, people are doing it, okay? Of all denominations and all church types and religion types and all that sort of stuff. In fact, pretty much every religion out there other than Christianity is trying to get you to do something to get yourself to heaven. But we can never be good enough. Being a good person, doing the right thing, and trying to love God, and trying to love your neighbors, and trying to live right will not get you to heaven because good is never good enough. In fact, how good would be good enough, right? It would be absolute perfection, we find out in the scriptures, and none of us are that. In fact, you can be zealous for God, as Paul points out here, and be lost in sin. Doesn't matter. For instance, if you show up at the office this week, fired up and zealous for your job, if you show up at the wrong office, okay? Doesn't matter if a football player is zealous to score a touchdown if he, if he scores it for the wrong team, right? Knowledge matters, right? Understanding the truth matters. And here Paul is saying, man, understanding the gospel matters. Listen, there are people all over the world religiously zealous. Christianity is full of denominations. There's other religions. There's Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. You name it. But it's not, if it's not grounded in the f- truth of Jesus Christ. That he is Messiah. And that he is Lord. That he is Savior. And that you must turn from your sin and believe in him. And him alone to save you. Then it's not according to knowledge. You can be zealous for God. Or what you understand to be God in your mind. But not be according to the truth of God. And you can fail to believe the gospel. And you can stay in your sin. See, attempting to establish your own right standing with God, it leads to a failure to believe. We can't establish our own righteousness before God and at the same time believe the gospel. It cannot be done. In fact, a part of forsaking our sin, repentance, and coming to Christ is not just repenting of all the bad things we can think of that we've done. It's also repenting of our self-righteousness and trying to save ourselves. That's a sin too. And the good news of the Bible is that we don't have to do enough to be saved. It's not our zeal. It's not our activity. It's not our righteousness that makes us acceptable to God. Isn't that good news? I mean, I don't always feel zealous. I'm not always filled with zeal, right? Sometimes I do good just to, you know, sing. (laughs) We're not always zealous as we should be, but we're not saved by our zeal. Zeal's a good thing. The Bible tells us in Romans, we'll get to it in chapter 12, it tells us to be zealous for, for good works and things of that nature. But, but we all fail in all these areas. We, we're not saved by zeal, we're saved by faith in Jesus. God has sent a Savior who has fulfilled the law that we can't keep. Most people are living their lives, though, according to do. I got to do enough. But the gospel is done, right? That Christ has done enough. He's done all that it's taken in the life he lived and the death he died and his resurrection to save us. We live according to what's been done, not according to what we can do to save ourselves. Amen? 
Now Paul explains in verses 5 through 13 that righteousness is not something we attain, right? Through effort. But he goes into uh, into depth here explaining faith in Jesus Christ. That the gospel is the good news. That Jesus did for us what we can't do for ourselves. But we have to receive the gift. And the only way we can receive the gift is by faith. Right? We, We can't keep the law. I mean, if you want to be saved by being moral enough or good enough or keeping the law or going back and keeping the Ten Commandments and things like that, good luck. I mean, best wishes. I can't do it. I don't think you can either, but, you know, we can't do it. So we need a Savior. And in verses 6 through 8, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 10 through 12. And those verses in the Old Testament are about the law. And as John Stott points out, Paul seems to be using this passage now in the New Testament to point where then it was about how accessible the law was to the Israelites. Now it's about how accessible the gospel is. And how, how it's just right there, right? Paul, Paul points out, he says, we can't save ourselves. We've got to stop trying to do that. In other words, he says, what needs to be done in, in, in Jesus. Jesus coming to us and Jesus uh, rising from the dead. Those things have been done. So you don't need to try to ascend and descend and all that kind of stuff. He's quoting and he's playing on Old Testament terminology that the Jews in the audience would have understood. He said, no, what needs to be done for you to be saved has been done. We don't do the work. And we don't need to wait for someone to do it. The work's been done. Jesus paid it all. He done it all. And Paul uses a quote in verse 8 about the availability of the law to Israel to say this. Now it's the gospel that is near. It's in your mouth, believer. It's in your heart, right? As he was talking about it uh, with with the law in the Old Testament, he says, listen, it's in your mouth, believer. It's it's in your heart. The gospel is so near. It's so easily accessible. You only need to believe. You only need to believe. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul is using uh, what uh, scholars call parallelism right here. You see those verses, look there on the screen, verses 9 and 10, if we can get that up there. Um, When he talks about believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. Paul Paul is not providing like steps. He's he's not pitting these things against one another. He's not saying that you need more than faith, you need something else. It's it's two ways of saying the same thing. And what Paul is doing, he's making a point that the heart and the mouth are so connected he said man you got to believe in your heart you got to confess with your mouth it's, those are basically if, it, if it's truly coming from a heart of faith it's, it's, it's the, 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 the mouth will pour forth that Jesus is Lord you can't really believe it in your heart and not be willing to acknowledge it with your lips and if we're acknowledging it with our lips it should be coming from a transformed heart that's what Paul's doing here so confess with your mouth he says believe in your heart So heart and mouth we see are connected. And Paul's point in verses 12 and 13 is that anyone, Jew or Gentile, all races, all peoples are invited to come and respond to this gospel. He says Jesus is Lord over everybody. We all got the the same Lord over us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who will place their faith in him and him alone to be saved, he's saying, will be saved. So the only hope for the Jew The only hope for the Gentile, the only hope for the white or the black or the brown or you you name it, is Jesus, right? We all all need to say, we're all all the same kind of sinner. We need the same kind of savior. We need Jesus. And and every culture and every ethnicity and every nation ultimately is going to answer to King Jesus. That's what he's saying when he's saying he is Lord. He's Lord of all. And Paul's point in this passage is not to make salvation some token tip of the hat to Jesus. Sometimes this verse gets abused. Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Oh, well, okay. Lord, save me. Right? Done. Doesn't matter. Anything else matter? 
I prayed a prayer, asked him to save me. So no matter my heart condition, is that a magic formula, a magic pill? I'm now a Christian? That's not Paul's point. You have to take this in the context of Romans that we've been walking through for, for months. The key to this passage, uh, or one of the keys to this passage, is as I, I think John MacArthur gets this right. He points out it's that Jesus is Lord. Uh, to call on the Lord, that phrase Paul uses there throughout the Old Testament was a sign uh, of the people of God. They were the ones who called on the Lord, who called on Yahweh, okay, because you'll usually see that in all capital letters. Sometimes you'll see Lord in big L and little letters, and sometimes you'll see it in your Bible in Lord, all capital letters. And what that is doing is they're letting you know when they're using the name like Adonai and when they're using the name Yahweh, or, or when it was referring to that from the Hebrew, and Yahweh was the covenant name of God. You know, and, and, and when they talk about worship, when they talk about God keeping his promises, and they talk about being the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, they use Yahweh, okay? And so when you see that, it was a, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, you should go, oh, well, in the Old Testament, man, it referred to God's people constantly as those who called on him as Lord. In other words, who acknowledged him as the one true God. We see it the first time in Genesis chapter 4, where it says after, after um, you had um, the birth of Seth, right? And so between the first two children that Adam and Eve had, uh, the one, uh, uh, Cain, murdered Abel. And then they had another son named Seth. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 4, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's signifying there the, the righteous line the, 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 that was coming through Seth. And you see uh, that this, fra this phrase throughout the Old Testament, because that's what God's people do. Right, we call on Yahweh, we call on the one true God as Lord. And what Paul is doing is, and when he's referring to God as sovereign king, ruler, all-powerful God, he is now in the New Testament, he is connecting that to Jesus. And he's saying a, a true child of God recognizes that Jesus is the one true, true king. Jesus is the sovereign ruler. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what Paul's pointing to here. He's the true Lord. So we look to Jesus in true faith. So to do that means to recognize and acknowledge that he is king, that he is Lord. He is the one our lives should be yielded to. It's more than just like a magic prayer. So no, it's a, it's a, it's a faith from the heart. That from the core of who you are that says, yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. Yes, Jesus paid my sin debt. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. It's the kind of faith, man, that, that rests and that recognizes who Jesus is and rests in him. It's a faith that'll, it'll, it's a faith that'll change your life. It'll change your life. So it's, it's more than a simple acknowledgement of facts. A mental ascent. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It's a heartfelt trust. It's a simple faith, but it's not an empty faith. It's a faith that trusts Jesus truly as Savior and Lord. But there are some things you do have to know. When he says, believe in your heart, he says, God raised him from the dead. Now, he's not ignoring the cross there and our importance of putting our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. He's explained all that throughout this point. No, the empty tomb validates and shows the importance of his death on the cross. It shows us that, that in fact, he did pay our sin debt on the cross. Without a resurrection, the cross does nothing for us. We're almost to be pitied if there's no resurrection, Paul would later tell us in 1 Corinthians 15. So we need the cross and we need the resurrection. But notice it's belief in the heart, not mere acknowledgement with the mind that Paul points to here. So you can hear the facts and you do have to hear them, but there has to be a faith from the heart and that's the core of who you are. The core of who you are. And 
And we can't have that kind of faith in, in, in Jesus as Lord and not begin to affect the way we live. And it will over time because it's a repentant faith. We're turning from unbelief and we're turning from our sin. We're turning from having control of our lives and we're, we're yielding ourselves over to Jesus. And we're putting our trust in him. And not just for our eternity, but with, with, with our lives, we're, we're trusting him. So it's going to lead over time to a transformed life. But there is no list of do's and don'ts to become a child of God. It's not clean up your act and come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus in repentant faith. Let him clean you up. Listen, we're not saved by life change. We're saved unto life change. Jesus saves us and changes our lives. He doesn't say, change your life so you can be saved. No. So we got to be careful not to be breaking out do and don't lists for people. Make sure they check all of our boxes and talk like we talk, walk like we walk, do what we do. Just come to Jesus and let Jesus change people. Come to him by faith, simple faith. You know, preachers have been using um, the story of a guy named Charles um, Blunden for a long time uh, to, to explain uh, faith. Charles Blunden, you see his picture up there, I'll explain that picture in a moment, was a daredevil in the late 1800s. And he used to walk across uh, the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He made it, as said, about 300 trips across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope and that on his tightrope that he would travel around the cities and do all these things with it he traveled some 10,000 miles on rope it's a cable it's amazing when you think about it and he would take the tightrope and he would take trips back and forth across the Niagara Falls and crowds would see it and you know some people loved it made him famous some people hated it because they thought man who's this guy risking his life they, they thought it was grotesque they thought it was foolish so he'd get bad press sometimes he'd all kinds of wild stuff I heard the, the story is and this is in the Smithsonian right magazine you can look it up that he actually took a, a stove and planted it in the middle of the cable like with another one running across right and planted it there and he went and he he, he cooked an omelet on the stove and then and ate it and did this on the, on the tightrope. One time he took a table and chairs out there and sat down on them. I mean, he did crazy, crazy stuff. And once with President Willard Fillmore in attendance, he carried a wheelbarrow across. Now, there's a legend that goes with this. And I can't find out if it's true or not. But this is the part preachers love to tell. That he, but he did go across back and forth with a wheelbarrow. And it was said that he would work the crowd up, right? And he'd be, you know, and he would, hey, you know, do you believe I can go across this with a wheelbarrow? Yeah, and he'd go across it and he'd come back across and say, uh, do, you, do you believe that I can do You know, and he'd just kind of build them up. And they'd be like, yeah, they'd seen him do it. Of course we know you can do it. We've seen you do all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and Charles Blunden asked someone, he said, well, I need a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow, right? And yeah, nobody. And preachers have been saying for a long time, that's the difference in just mental acknowledgement and saving faith. Saving faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. Now, the picture that I've shown you is one of my favorite stories about him. He had, a, he had an agent by the name of Harry Calcord. I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, who, knew, who even knew agents existed in the 1800s, but they did. And that is his agent, Harry. He talked Harry into going across the Niagara Falls on his back. Once, he carried two men across on his back. But that's his agent, Harry. And he said to Harry, here's the quote from the Smithsonian. Here's the quote that he said to Harry as they made their way across. He says, look up, Harry. You are no longer Calcord. You are Blunden. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself if you do, we will both go to our death. No attempt to balance yourself. Simply 
He's just simply trusting Charles Blunden to get him across to the other side. And true saving faith in Jesus and what he's done and his death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection is, man, there's, I'm not going to in any way attempt to save myself. I repent of trying to be good enough. I repent of trying to be moral enough. Not that I'm not going to be a moral person, but I know that doesn't save me. I'm resting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Man, I, I'm on his back and he's going to have to carry me to the other side. That is saving faith. Have you clung to Jesus in this way? If you believe this gospel, that kind of faith, this gospel will not fail you. But we can fail to believe. So do not fail to believe the gospel. But secondly, believer, do not fail to proclaim the gospel. Verses 14 through 17, we see Paul reveals the only way people can believe is, by, is to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. He says, calling comes from believing, and believing comes from hearing, and hearing comes from preaching, and preaching comes from being sent. And we know God has sent us. We've been given a great commission. We, we're, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you're sent. And Paul quotes, again, in the, from the Old Testament, that those who are sent bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And verse 16 is, is speaking of the Jews that, um, that, that at that time, he says, they, no, that they have... They have heard the gospel. They have not believed what they've heard, right? But he, he makes the point there. He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so here, here's the point. The only way anyone will believe is if they hear. And faith comes from hearing. I would even say, listen, even if you've been a Christian for years, you want to build and grow your faith, you need to be in the word of God. That is the ingredient, the core ingredient to growing your faith is pouring the word of God in you because faith comes from hearing, right? Right? So it's like, I never come to church. I'm, I'm inconsistent. I don't sit under preaching or I don't, get, I don't get involved in a small group here and there or I don't read my Bible and I wonder why I have trouble trusting God. It's because the key ingredient to growing your faith, you're neglecting. And if we do that, there's going to be a problem with, with walking in faith like we should. But listen, here he's talking about the context is, is salvation. And he's saying no one can believe what they have not heard. And faith comes from hearing. That's how God has chosen to work. The way God's chosen to save people is for them to hear the gospel, whether they read it or whether they hear it audibly, to hear the gospel and then believe the gospel. And this is just God's process. And so with Israel, he's going to point out the, the problem was not that they were not hearing it. They were just refusing to believe it. And this passage is showing how urgent it is that we get the gospel to people. We have to ask ourselves questions like this. Do we have a heart for the lost? Paul states in verse 1 of chapter 10 that his desire was that his Jewish brethren be saved. He talked about it in the beginning of chapter 9 that, man, he wishes he could be cut off from Christ in order that they believe. I mean, he was seriously committed to wanting to see people saved. And we will not live sent lives of going and sharing and, and, and trying to see people come to know Christ if, if we don't have hearts that love and desire for people to be saved. You say, well, of course I want people to be saved. Do we have the kind of heart that really the New Testament calls us to? Sometimes we don't. If we got real honest, all of us could raise our hands. Sometimes our heart's not where it should be. There's not that hunger there that should be. But we can cultivate a heart that longs to see people saved by drawing close to Jesus because that's his heart. And as we draw close to him in his word and prayer, he will, he will transform our heart more and more. And at the same time, let me tell you, you can't pray for someone and not develop a heart for them. 
You got someone you're angry at? You've got someone that's done you wrong? You've got someone you have trouble forgiving? You need to pray for them. And you got someone that you want to see be saved? Pray for them. And at some point, you'll find yourself opening your mouth and sharing the gospel with them. Because it's hard when they're right there and they're on your heart and you're praying for them. Let me ask you, we, we begin, for those of you that have been with us since the beginning of the year, we asked the question of who's your one? Who's one person this year that you'll seek to share the gospel with and that you'll pray to see them come to know Christ and pray that God would save them? And many of you have written names up, some, several names. We've got some cards over there, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight names of people far from God, first names that, that we're praying for back there on that wall. Let me ask you, who's your one? Are you still praying for them? Are we sharing with them? Now's a good time to recalibrate at this point in the year and go, you know what? Maybe I've been praying with them, but maybe I haven't had that opportunity. Or maybe I, I've shared once, but maybe I need to share again. And we need to constantly be reminding ourselves that we've got to have this deep and pray for this deep, longing, heartfelt desire to see lost people come to know and love and trust Jesus. We've got to ask ourselves, am I willing to embrace my role in God's plan? Because you've got a role. When he says preach, he's not just talking about me. That just means proclaim, right? We're all called to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Paul explains that our our roles there in this chain of events that are taking place, right? And the only place that it can break down, right? He says if they they hear and people believe and if they believe and they'll call and all this kind of stuff. God has already sent. That's, That's in motion. The only place it breaks down is if we choose not to proclaim. We don't share the gospel. Then they don't hear and then they don't believe. We're not guaranteed that they'll believe, but we're guaranteed that they won't if they don't hear. That's just the way it works. That's the point. That's what Paul wants us to see. That if we don't share, they can't hear. And if they can't hear, they can't believe. Listen, we can pray for them all day. And that's good. We should. But if all we do is pray and we don't know, they're not going to get saved just by our prayers. They have to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And I heard a statistic one time that some, something like, it's, on average, a person hears the gospel about nine times before they respond in faith. That's just, you know, doesn't mean a lot other than the point of we tend to have to sow a lot of seeds and for God to cultivate their heart. But this news is urgent. It's urgent. We have to get the gospel to people. Listen, parents. Are you sharing the gospel with your children? Are you sharing the gospel with your children? If they only hear it here, for instance, in kid church and, and things of that nature, that's not enough. We have to explain it and share it. I, let me give you what I do. And, I, and, I, and I'm not perfect at this in any way. But what I try to do is when I, when I pray for my kids at night, for instance, before they go to bed, I always pray for their salvation every night. They hear me pray for their salvation. And, when, and from time to time, we'll sit and we'll talk and I'll explain to them how I'm, I'm praying. You know, I sit down with Ken. I'm praying for you to be saved. I want you to believe the gospel. And here's what the gospel is. You need to be saved. I want my kids to know that I think they need a savior. And that I know I need a savior, okay? And when they see me mess up, they need to hear me say, you know what? Dad messes up too. And it points to the fact that dad needs a savior just like you need a savior. None of us are good enough, including mom or dad. We all need Jesus. And that needs to be sown into our children's life. And are we sharing the gospel with them? Are we, of course, we desire their salvation. But are we sharing the gospel story with them? Are we praying for them? Are we communicating to them their need for the gospel? Who in your family or at work or on the street that you meet in your neighborhood needs the gospel? I think we need to stop assuming salvation for people. I think we do that sometimes. 
We think, well, they're bad. They, they, I heard they go to this church, or I heard they go to that church, or I hear they're Catholic, or what? Well, so what? We all need Jesus, and everybody can only get to heaven one way, and that's through Jesus. And so, let me, you know what happens if you share the gospel with someone, you find out they're already a Christian? Fellowship, right? Share prayer requests, I don't know. Oh, I, oh you didn't know this, but I'm committed and a faithful uh, believer that goes to such and such church. Praise the Lord. You know, how can I pray for you today? I mean, I mean you, know, you say, well, what if they're deeply offended? Well, that's between them and God. You're just doing what you're told to do, right? We need to stop assuming salvation for people. Don't assume they're a Christian because they go to church. Listen, oh, like the old saying goes, everything in your garage is not a car. Just because it's in the garage. And everybody that goes to church is not a Christian. We need to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel and some of us, maybe, if we got real honest, we need to get over ourselves a little bit. That can be a tendency that we get into that hang, hang, get hang up, hung up on ourselves and what we think about ourselves and what we think people think about us. And that'll prevent us from proclaiming the gospel. Well, I don't want them to think that I'm blah, 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 blah. I don't want them to think I'm weird. They already think you're weird. Listen. If they're not a Christian and they were not raised around Christianity and if they have not heard the gospel, if they hear what you believe, they're going to probably think you're weird. If you really believe that a, a carpenter who died on a cross 2,000 years ago is Lord of heaven and earth and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, they're going to, that, that's going to sound weird to their ears. In fact, the Bible says it sounds like foolishness to them. To the perishing, it's foolishness. We got to get over what we think people think about us. We got to crucify our image and crucify our desires and crucify all these things so that we can die to self, which is what Jesus told us we have to do if we're going to move forward with him into the lives of lost people. And listen, you need to realize this morning that you have what you need to make a difference in the lives of your neighbors. You've got the gospel. You've got everything. Paul says what? It's, it's so near. It's in your, it's in your mouth. It's, it's in your heart. You have what you need, right? You have what you need. You just need to realize you have everything you need, child of God, to make a difference in your child's life, your neighbor's life. You have what you need. I was thinking about that this weekend, and I was thinking, you know, when we, we went to um, Cuba this summer, we took a group of about seven or eight guys to Cuba on a mission trip. And we were there in Trinidad sharing the gospel. And I got to preach several times. We got to go door to door. And I mean, guys got to lead people to Christ. We saw something like 20 people or more receive Christ while we were there. It was just an incredible time that we had while we were in Cuba there on that mission trip. And thank you for those that supported and prayed for us when we went. And while we were there, we just, you know, we got to experience Cuban coffee. Mm, I got, man, amen's on that, right? Great. And we had coffee three times a day. We had it for breakfast, usually a little cafe con leche, and then we had it for lunch, a little pick-me-up around noon, a little shot of espresso, and then we had it at night, and a lot of times it was with ice cream. We were really suffering for the Lord um, there in Cuba. We didn't share all that with, at our mission report. We didn't want to, you know, but we had, and so, man, we just love, you know, and I don't even like espresso. I, mean, I was just following, and then we found out they, they brew it there with, with the sugar already in the water. 
I'm like, oh, no wonder I like it, right? And so a few of us got real curious, and we're like, how do they make this? We want to know how they make it, because we want to be able to do, because, you know, they're using coffee we brought, so we want to, we can get the coffee. Well, how do we make it just like you make it? And so we went back to the kitchen to see how they do it. And there were bigger versions than this. This is a tiny one. This is like a little two cup. But they had these giant ones, some 10, 12 cups, look just like this. They had about three or four of them on the stove, and that's what they were using to make the coffee. And we were like, really, how does that work? And they were like, well, you unscrew this thing. Okay, and it's empty in there, and you, you put your water in there, and you put your sugar in there, and then you put your coffee's little cup that sits inside of it. You put your coffee there, put it, and put it on the eye, and you boil it, and as it, boil, it boils, and the moisture goes up, and the coffee brews, and it traps it up here. I'm like, how does that work? Seems backwards to me. Seems like it should work. Anyway, but I'm from Alabama, right? And so I don't really know how water and all that stuff works, but that, that's how this thing works, and it makes this incredible coffee. And all of us were like, we got to get one of those, right? So we begin to, you know, you go on Amazon, but you can't see all the Amazon stuff because, well, you're in Cuba and you just can't use the internet as freely as we can use it here. Some things, you know, I think they might have, here's one somewhere, I don't know. You're like, I don't, how do we, and we found out, well, you can buy them here. They're everywhere, we were told. They're everywhere, you can just get them here. I'm like, well, how great would that be? Because it must be a Cuban thing, right? This must be something they, so we're looking everywhere. We, we walk in the streets, and we go to Havana before we come home, and I don't know how long we spent. We walk, you know, a lot of people were complaining about how much walking we do. We, we could use a little walking, right? And so we're going, we're looking everywhere, trying to find that thing, right? We're sweating in the Cuban heat, and we never found one. Oh, they're everywhere. We couldn't find one. We get to the airport, can't find them. Oh, well, well, hopefully we can find one. Hopefully they're not outrageously expensive in the U.S., and we get home, and I'm sitting at Chick-fil-A. That's what you do when you leave a mission trip from Cuba. You go to Chick-fil-A, right? And so we're sitting at Chick-fil-A. I'm sitting there with my wife and kids. And, and, uh, and I'm explaining to Christy about this wonderful coffee maker that we just got to have. And I pull up a picture of it. I said, that's what I'm going to order. Look, I found now. You can get them on Amazon for $15. Who knew? I wouldn't have even been doing all that looking. And she said, Josh, we have one at home. <laughs> that's what this is for my house. She said, I've had it about 10 years. I think I bought it before we were married. I mean, like, we've had this thing for a while. Like, it's in the cabinet. And I'm like, I had one of these at home? I could have I could have had this coffee all this time. and I could have saved some miles on my feet, you know, and had it at home. In fact, I was at Publix not long after that. And I walked down, like, the coffee aisle or something, and there they are. It's like, I'm all, at Publix? You know, for like $8. You know, I'm like, they're everywhere. And apparently these aren't as big a deal as I thought they were. But they're everywhere. Because, you know... It got me thinking, you know, sometimes what we're looking for is just right there. They're right there. And I think sometimes some of us, man, we're thinking, I want to make a difference in my neighborhood. I want to make a difference in the life of my child. I want to make a difference at work. I want my life to count. I want my life to matter. I don't want to waste my life. When I'm dead and gone, I want to have counted. I'm telling you, if you're a child of God, the one thing you need you already have, and it's the gospel. That's what God uses to change lives. And if we're going to fulfill our mission, or excuse me, our vision of being a catalyst for gospel transformation in our community, then that's only going to happen if we open our mouths and we let out what we've got in our heart, which is the gospel. The things your neighbors and your kids and your coworkers need, the thing they need most when you hear about their struggling marriage and when you hear about their problems over here and their problems over there and the brokenness that they're encountering and the death they're grieving or whatever they're going through, the thing they need most, you have. You already have it. It might be locked away somewhere and you might need to dust it off, but it's the gospel. It's the gospel. We've just got to get into the conversation and see where it goes and, and, tell, and let them know that we have good news. And listen, here's the thing. It's their response it's the response is on them to either believe or reject. And that's what verses 18 through 21 are about. 
He's quoting from the Old Testament. His point is the Israelites had heard in that day and they had understood. The problem was not that they didn't hear. The problem was not they didn't understand. They were without excuse. The problem was they just failed to believe. He says they're found by those who didn't seek me. That's referring to the Gentiles. That's us. Those who are not a part of Israel. We didn't have the law and all these promises, but God brought us in through Christ. Paul is going to explain this more next week. We'll get into it, but God is still calling both Jew and Gentile to salvation. But he ends this chapter with, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Because at the end of the day, the offer is there, but we've got to respond. And like many of them in that day, we can just be disobedient, contrary people. We can hear the gospel and fail to believe it. And as believers, we can fail to share it so that they don't even have opportunity to believe it. So maybe today God's holding the gospel out to you. And you need to decide what you're going to do with it, right? Maybe today you need to get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, of faith. Maybe today you need to climb on Jesus' back and allow Jesus to save you. Stop trying to establish your own righteousness and trust that Jesus died in your place and rose again. It's not just a mental ascent. Man, you got you to believe in your heart. You need, maybe you need to give your heart to Jesus today. Maybe you need to really trust him from your heart to save you and, and stop striving and start resting in what Christ has done. And maybe today you're like me and you've been a believer for years, but you need to recommit yourself to proclaiming the gospel so that people can hear it, so that they may believe. Let me ask you, who's your one? Or who's your two? Or who's your three? Maybe today when we stand here in just a moment and we sing and we pray, maybe you need to come forward and just spend some time in committed public prayer for the person that you're burdened about and ask God for boldness. You know, in Acts chapter 4, they prayed for boldness and then they went out. Man, the, the place shook as they prayed. And as they prayed for boldness, they went out there and they boldly proclaimed the gospel. All that great stuff that happened in Acts, it happened on the back of prayer. Public, together, unified prayer to boldly share the gospel. Maybe we need that. Do not fail to believe the gospel. Do not share, do not fail to share the gospel. The response, though, it's, it's, it's not up to me. It's up, it's up to you. It's up to us. It's up to each of us individually. Let's pray.